This morning, we get to end this series, this journey we've won, titled, I Won't Give Up. Just heard it kind of sung. And we're going to just bring this thing down to a point of commitment. And I'm really excited about that. First service was, well, I loved what I saw happen first service. It's cool to trust that God's going to work again here. We're in a series on marriage. And yesterday, I was at a, um, I was at a wedding. And it again, reminded me about this series because as that bride and that groom came forward and were on the stage all around the room, you watched people that loved them and friends and people that I even knew that I was kind of surprised to see kind of tears come from the eyes, you know, because because what is it about a wedding that just draws out this romance and this excitement and no one was there thinking they're not going to make it right. And there might've been a few skeptics. There might've been a few people that really know what's going on behind the scenes, but, but in all seriousness, no one's there thinking they're not, they're thinking till death do us part. We're gone for this thing. So we've been talking about marriage and how do we do it? And what does the Bible say about it? And how do we really make this thing not just last, but really thrive? Now, to kind of get us moving this morning, I want us, I'd like us to think back. If you're married in this room, kind of pull back and think about those early days when you first met your spouse. Just think back and try and remember. I mean, think back. I wanted you to think about the sweaty palms, you know, remember, remember some of that when you went to hold his hand and you're like, Ooh, gross. You know, it's like, he was so nervous. You think back to the nervous conversation, the first kiss, you know, the joy, the passion, the excitement, the laughter to help you. Maybe I'll tell some of mine. I know your stories aren't my stories, but I'll just share some of mine. Maybe spur some of yours to think back. I remember one of the, was actually the second time I actually ever physically met my wife. Her name was Tanya Brom. Her was her maiden name. We were working at a children's camp. It was a ranch. They had a hundred horse there. This big, cool, exciting elementary age camp. We were both working in the camp on the side of the camp where there were teenagers there, roughly 150 teenagers that ran the camp all summer. We were responsible for those kids um, and on the staff that was responsible. Tanya led and worked with the crafter. She had this beautiful craft shop and on the ranch, she had all these crafts and uh, one night early in the camp, there was this big program and we had to shuttle kids around after the program was done. And Tanya was one of the van drivers. And so I'm coming up with my boys and we're trying to get in the van and, and I go to squeeze in and there's no room left in this 15 passenger van. So they said, Adam, head up to the other van. So I open up the doors, of the other van, and it was filled with estrogen. There wasn't a single man in the entire van. So I climb in, I work myself, you know, this all the way to the back of the 15 passenger van. I sit down and Tanya, this, I look up I can see from a distance. There she is. The girl I've been thinking about, the girl I've been dreaming about, the girl I've been dying to meet. There she is. She's driving the van. So she goes and drops off, pulls up to the girls' dorms and the cabins and all these girls pour out. And it's just me left thinking, score, this is exciting. Now, I don't know if she tried this. I don't know if she set this up. I mean, because who wouldn't want to just get to know me? And so anyway, so she, but we're driving back to the other side of the camp to, to drop me off. And all I remember is I, I stayed kind of at a distance. I'm like, do I, do I move up? Do I stay in my seat? And I thought, what can I say to a really impress her? So I, lesser known fact about me, I used to cut wooden jigsaw puzzles. I'd like to still to this day, but time and family and other things have crept in on that. And I used to have this, what I call craft business. It's kind of generous to call it that, but I go to craft shows, you know, and set up tables and sell these wooden jigsaw puzzles. So I'm like the craft lady, I'll tell about my business. That's what I did. I said, I, I used to have a small craft business. What do you think? And so she laughs at this sense. I mean, she thinks, what, what was he thinking? And so anyway, that was the, so, but do you remember those times when you first interacted with your now spouse? 
the nervous energy, the trying to impress, the excitement in the heart. The, I remember, I remember, um, I could tell so many stories on this. Um, I remember, I remember our first kiss. Our first kiss happened. Actually, back up. Let me tell you the time I asked her out. You'll enjoy this. I think some of you have heard this story. I, I was in my boss's office. And I was talking to my boss. My boss knew Tanya. And my boss uh, was talking to me and, and kind of gave me some pointers. And do you really like her? Well, we're there the one day, I'm in a meeting with him. And out of his window, you can see the back of her craft shop. And while we're in our meeting, it was like an hour and a half meeting. And in the midst of that meeting, two different men came to the back of her craft shop. One of them came with a flower. And I'm thinking, oh, look at this competition. So my boss looks at me and says, Adam, if you don't get on the stick, you're, you're going to get moving. So that afternoon, I think it was that afternoon, might've been the next day, but I'm like, I got to do this. I got to do this. So I, I grab three other junior high boys from, for moral support. Right. And I load them up on this golf cart. I load them up on this golf cart that I was, I was the job I did. I drove all around the camp on this golf cart. I pull up outside of her craft shop, literally from me to like way over there. I mean, it's, we're, we're at a distance. And I'm like, okay, here it goes. And I, she's out in the deck of the craft shop and I holler up, hey, what are you doing on Friday night? And Tanya, some of you know her, she's real quick-witted. Right back, my laundry. <laughs> now, these guys I brought along for moral support, they weren't such moral support. You could hear them. <laughs> I'm like, come on, guys, help me out of here. So I think she could see the awkwardness of, of, of what she just stunned this very nervous, very nervous man. And so she says, well, actually nothing. And so I asked her, we went and played mini golf then that Friday. And that was our first real date. Um, a lot of fun. I think you beat me. Is that right? We tied. We tied. I let her. That was my plan. <laughs> and the next one, the final story I'll tell is when we got engaged. Uh, we worked at this camp. It was our second summer now at this camp. And there's 150 kids. We have this big banquet at the end of the summer. Big, huge banquet with all these, these teenagers to just celebrate what they've done all summer, the work they've put in for 10 weeks. And the summer's ending. You know, if any of you worked at camp, there's all these memories and excitement and the friendships that you make. So I come up on the stage because I'm the leader, one of the leaders of this camp. And, and so I, um, I'm natural for me to be on stage. And so I'm challenging the kids to hold on to their friendships because there's friends that you really want to keep and hold on to. And I said, like, there's one here I'd like to keep. So I asked Tanya Brahm to come up on the stage. And I forget, my, I had my sister was working at the camp too. And my sister runs to the back and grabs roses, red roses like this, 12 of them, and brings them out. I get down on one knee and I look up at her and all the, all the 150 teenagers like, oh, this is so cute. And I say, you know, I, some of you remember the moment when you did this, guys, girls, maybe some of you had to propose. Um, your goddess would never get to it. But remember that moment where I look up at her eyes and I'm like, I want to marry you. Will you marry me? And she says, yes. I was thrilled. I hugged her. We go back and sit down. Now, some of you say, no, Adam, this isn't real. This is legit. I had, up until that point, I had never kissed my wife, not even on the forehead, the cheek, nowhere. My lips never touched any, her hand, nothing. Now, the reason I did that, I tell people this, say, what's wrong with you? Because I, I, my past, apart from Jesus, I struggled with sex. It was just the whole lust. And, and I knew that I blew it so bad and had so much stuff in my past that I didn't know how to walk in a godly way. So I just said, we aren't even going to get near each other. Now, just, we didn't. So we sit down, we're now engaged. There's a rule at the camp, the, a no physical contact rule. 
And so I'm the leader of the camp. So I'm like, we aren't going to break that rule right now. Tanya didn't think I'd break that rule. And, but the director of the camp, I look over and he starts chanting, kiss, 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 kiss. 150 teenage kids start chanting, kiss, kiss. And the whole room's erupted in kiss. And to this day, I shocked her. She couldn't believe I did it. I lean over and I laid one right on her. I mean, we... And the cool thing was the cameras are going wild. So we actually have a picture of our first kiss. Not many people can say that. We, got a, we even got a videotape, and it's pretty cool. But I think back on those days. And I don't tell those stories just to talk about my life, but hopefully it stirred some thoughts in you. What was it like for you? Do you remember the, those days, the nervous energy, the excitement? I mean, I'd lay in bed at night, and I would dream about this girl. I'd think about her. I'd figure out what could I do next to impress her? What could I do to really let her know I love her? What could I do that really serves her? What can I, I just thought about her all the time. Now, fast forward to today. Where does it go? Where does it go? I love my wife to death. And I would even say I love her more today than I did then. And I've heard pastors stand on stages like this and theologians and authors of books. And, and they say this, well, it doesn't really go anywhere. It just matures. And I say, sure, I get that. We were, to, we were at that wedding yesterday. And as, as we were slow dancing together and kind of really just taking it in. And I, I, I leaned down, I whispered to her, I love you more now than I did then ever. And that's true. But I'll be honest. I don't lay at bed at night and dream about my wife anymore. What I can do to really impress her. I know she's all disappointed now. She's like, I knew it. So where does it go? Where's that affection and that passion and that joy? Where does it go? I've heard other pastors and theologians and authors and respected people and people I look to will stand on a stage like this and they'll say, well, love isn't an emotion. Some of you've heard this, right? It's an action. I say, not fully. Love that is not in action is not love. I would agree that 110%. You can sit and tell me you love me all you want, but if you're not moving in my direction to serve me, to care for me, you don't really love me. I would agree with that. However, if you rob love of affection, you've stripped love right out of the Bible. Love is full of affection. It is, it is fully an emotion. And you cannot rob it of that. When God looks at us and says, I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He isn't saying to me, Adam, I want you to serve me. Adam, I want you to work really hard for me. Adam, it's an action. Do, 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 do for me. He says, I want your heart. I want your mind. I want your emotions. I want all of you. I want you to love you more than anything else in the world. Love is fully an affection. So where does it go? Now, I've thought about this a lot over the years. I've been married almost 15 years now. I know just getting started, some of you are like, oh, he's a rookie at this thing. I, I, I fully acknowledge that. But I've thought about this, and I've said, well, we get busy. We get really busy. Tanya and I talk about this. We love weddings. I mean, it's like ones that I don't need to officiate. It was like six hours without kids. I mean, it's like... It's like a meal that we didn't have to pay for. I mean, it's like, it's like, this is awesome. I mean, we got to, so we, we, but we we're talking as we're headed on this, on this wedding slash date, we talked about it, said, we're busy. We're so busy. And that creeps in on that, that affection and that love. Some of us, we stopped dating. I mean, those early years, I chased Tanya down like a ravenous lion. I mean, it was like, it is like, there is, I'm going after this. 
Where does that go after we get married? Doesn't some of us just kind of sit back? I got her. Why? Some of us just stop pursuing. And so the affection kind of dwindles there. Some of us begin to take our spouse for granted. Some of us get comfortable. Some of us have had kids. Now, kids are awesome. I love kids. But when these four little kids have come into our life, guess what? Now I'm giving love to four kids. And now I feel like I'm being torn and I'm sharing love and I'm sharing time. I know it's not just Tanya and Adam anymore. So that begins to pull some of that affection away. Some of us, life has gotten really, really hard. Maybe a physical illness has hit. Maybe some kind of deep suffering has set in, loss of job. And go on down a list of things that, that make that affection kind of begin to fade. For others of us, we're just not that intentional. And when we're not intentional about marriage, we begin to drift away from intimacy. I want you to open with me in the Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. And I believe over a lot of years of reflection, this one issue is where this love goes. I want to talk about it. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Ephesians is three-quarters of the way through the Bible. You're going to run through some bigger books called 1 Corinthians. There's another one called 2 Corinthians. You're going to see a book called Galatians. Then you're going to run into this book called Ephesians. We always like to say this, too. If you're brand new to the Bible and you may not have a Bible... Um, grab a friend next to you and look at theirs or grab your smartphone or, and then see us afterwards. We'd love to get a Bible in your hands. See me or see someone out at the little welcome center out there. Now, Ephesians chapter five is we spent a couple weeks in it. We didn't go to the depth that we could. Pastor Chris talked about it. I talked about it one week. Um, and hopefully we'll do another series on marriage somewhere in the future. And we'll maybe go a little deeper and unpack a little more from it. But Ephesians five is kind of the classic teaching on marriage. There's a couple verses that lead into Ephesians 5 that are pretty rich too, that are relational concepts, but not necessarily the marriage concepts. One of them comes in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 32. It says this, be kind and compassionate to one another. Now, this is relationship, but let's cast this in the sake of marriage. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, God, forgave you. Pastor Mark Driscoll, a, a pastor out in Seattle that, um, that I respect, leads a great church out in Seattle, uh, Washington. He says this, couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. Where did that love go? That passion, the affection. I love what Mark says. So we don't fall away from it so much as we fall out of repentance and forgiveness. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. So he says, be kind, compassionate, forgive, imitate God in this as dearly loved children. We're going to talk about this dearly loved children concept in a minute. And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Those verses, the challenge of them are crazy. Now, how did God love us? How did God forgive us? What did his compassion and kindness look like? Romans chapter five, I think captures it beautifully in a little snapshot. It says this, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Some of you know this verse, while we were still sinners, Christ died for you, 
for me, for us. Now, as I think about this verse, what I think happens to some of us over the years, especially those of you who um, maybe have grown up in the church or grown up in a religious moral family or grown up in just someone who just kind of is a Puritan work ethics, work hard, we begin to miss this concept. God did not die for a fun-to-love nice guy. Some of us begin to think that. Why wouldn't Tanya want to be married to Adam Nagel? He's a pretty cool guy. Why wouldn't Adam want to be married to Tanya Brahm? She's beautiful. I love her heart and her personality and her fun-loving nature that she brings to life. And we begin to look around at life and we think, well, did you see the news lately, Adam? I'm not anywhere near that. And most of us in this room, most of us in this room, not all of us, most of us in this room live pretty good lives. Work hard. Try to obey rules. But God says, while you were yet a sinner, you're far from God. While you were yet a sinner, Jesus died for us. And some of us miss the fact that God is holy. He's big. He's huge. He's majestic. He is absolutely perfect. And the law is a beautiful thing. And we are called to live up to it. And guess what? Guess what all of us discover? We can't do it. So whether I've driven 45 and a 30 or whether I've committed adultery, I'm a sinner. And that sin radically separates me from God. I violated human authority or I violated the covenant that I've made before God with my spouse. I am a sinner. And God says, well, you are yet a sinner. God looks at us and said, I want a relationship with him, with her. But they can't do it without my help. So because I'm vested in this thing, I'm going to put my life on the line. I'm going to hang on a cross and I'm going to die so that I can make sure we have an intimate, close relationship. And it says in the same way, Ephesians chapter four, in the same way we are to forgive other people, your spouse. Now, what I find interesting with this, what I find interesting with this is I've kind of thought about this one a lot. How does your spouse discover that you're a sinner? You sin against them. Now, so here's the deal. You come here this morning, most of you. You've brushed your teeth. You've done your hair. You've put on some nice clothes, most of you. I see a few that I'm like, ah, I would have, that color doesn't quite go, but we're good. You've come here kind of putting your best foot forward. You interact with people. And as you do it week in and week out, you go to your small groups or maybe you go to work and have the office to time together. You see something about that person or some of you have hung around me long enough. You say, oh, that's Adam. He's, yeah, we know Adam's weaknesses. And you're gracious towards me. You think that in your heart, you're gracious towards me, but the real push comes that you don't go home and get in bed with me. Praise Jesus. My wife does. And when we're at home, we let the guard down a whole lot more than we do when we're here in a public place. I don't know why we do it, but we do it. And the sin that comes out at home is coming out in a way that, what do I do with this? I don't like him. I'm not so sure. That really hurts me. I'm not too crazy about this. And we've got to work on this thing. And then we get in bed together and we keep, and it's like you are in the pressure cooker of life behind the scenes. But see, out here in real life, we can put our best foot forward and then go home and not live together. And we act like I'm a forgiving person. I want to push in on this one and say, this Ephesians 4, 32, forgive as Christ forgave, is pretty tough when it comes to marriage. And in our hurt and woundedness, I'd say it this way, in our hurt and woundedness, we can lose sight of the truth that no one has been sinned against more than God. Can I state this enough? 
Even if you're sitting here and your spouse has had an affair, betrayed you in one of the deepest ways possible, broken all trust with you. I cannot state enough that no one has sinned against you more than you've sinned against God. God is a holy, righteous, almighty God, creator of the universe. And some of us just simply full bore forget that we have violated him. And we walk around pointing our fingers at other people. And that hurt hits us and it's hard and I get it. And then when we are hurt, guess what hurt people do? We hurt other people. Behind the closed doors of that house called a home, where now we are spinning pain and dysfunction out of control. To help us with this, I want to tell a story. It is my favorite Bible story in all of scripture. I've preached on this section more than I, I, it's, it's, I just love it. I'm not going to have you read it. I want to maybe read it this week. It's in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. I want to just tell the story. I want to tell it with a bit of a modern twist. So it kind of sets in on your heart, um, hopefully. And it's this. Jesus gets together with some really good guys. Really good guys. I mean, these are the kind of guys that you would want your daughter to marry. They're kind of the religious leaders. They're very moral. They're upstanding citizens of the law. And he gets together. The one guy's name is Simon. He's kind of the, the one that kind of pulls the party together. And so Simon's hanging out. And all of a sudden, there's this other dinner guest that shows up. Now, this is a little awkward for us because if I'm having some of you over to my home for dinner and a stranger walks in, you think, how'd they even get in here? Back in the Middle Eastern and in, in this first century culture, it, they don't want to talk about all the culture of how this worked, but it would have been natural for a guest to kind of make their way in and in the courtyards and the way they would have gathered to eat and throw a party like this. But this woman is called in the text a sinner. Now, in the original language, some speculate that that word captures she's a whore. She's the town. I mean, her, her trade is using her body to make an income. She's looked down upon throughout all of society. And she makes it into this dinner party. And what she does is she comes and she gets on her knees. You can picture this. And she has long hair. That hair would have marked her trade. And her long hair is hanging and she is crying. Now, the text says that the tears wet Jesus' feet to the point where she was able to wash them with her hair. So I want you to picture this. This isn't just a simple drop or a little, I feel kind of upset. This is a full-bore sobbing. The, the, the faucets have been turned on and she is bawling her eyes out. And the, the, the tears are dropping at Jesus' feet. Now, in that culture, they didn't have shoes like we have and socks. His feet would have been dusty. When, when water hits dust, what becomes of it? Mud. So she takes her hair and she bends down. I'm sure she picks his foot up and just begins to scrub his feet with her hair. Now, again, don't think like our 21st century. Think first century. We didn't have pert plus and head and shoulders and a nice warm shower. Her hair that is a trademark of what she does for a living is now filled with mud and tangled, and knotted, and messy. Now, the good guys are kind of hanging out over here in a group, and they are appalled at this. They're like, how could Jesus even let this sinner touch her? Now, Jesus, knowing the hearts of men, looks at this guy named Simon and says, Simon, I have a story to tell you. Remember I said last week, Jesus didn't just whack people with truth. Here's an example of a beautiful. He doesn't just say, Simon, you're a loser. 
What he says to Simon, he says, Simon, I got a story for you. There's a money lender, a banker. And the banker decides one day that, hey, we're going to run this big campaign and we're going to give away, we're going to release the debt of two people. So the day comes and they say, again, this is modern version. We put the names in a hat. Let's draw the first name out of all the people that owe us money. Let's draw the first name out. Ha, John. John owes us $1,000. Let's eliminate John's debt. Now, John's pretty stoked. Some of you have consumer debt at $1,000. You'd like to get rid of that, right? That feels really good to have that going. Yeah, all right. Pull the next name out. $500,000 to, to, to Joe. Now, how do you feel? Simon, Jesus looks. Who loves the banker more? Now, Simon is like, come on, Jesus. That is so easy. Give me a harder one. Of course, it's the guy who had the $500,000 debt really eliminated. Jesus turns to Simon and says, Simon, it's interesting to me. From the time I've walked into this home, this woman has not stopped weeping at my feet and washing my feet. Something that you should have done. You are called by custom, and since it's your place, to provide a means for me to wash my feet. You didn't do it, neither did you provide a servant to do it. But this woman, who you do not even know personally, other than she's a sinner, washed my feet. Then he makes this powerful, powerful statement. He says, Simon, he who has been forgiven much, some of you know it, loves much. Luke 7, 47 then reads this way. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Now, this does not mean that if you grew up in a good upstanding home, This doesn't mean that for you to really get God's grace, you've got to go out and sleep around and do drugs and have this a wild, crazy life. It's not what this means. This means, again, whether I'm violating the speed limit or whether I am committing adultery, I am separated from God and my sin is repulsive to him. And from the littlest sin to the biggest sin, how we, I love how we like to categorize all this stuff. From the littlest sin to the biggest sin, God says, I've died for you. And it is a great offense that you've committed against me that I have eliminated that debt. I've eliminated it. Now, what I have found, some of us struggle with this. What I've found over the years of my marriage, see if you relate to this, when I've offended Tanya, when I know I've sinned against her, what do I generally want to do? I've even seen JCPenney put a really good commercial together. Have you ever seen it? The Doghouse commercial by JCPenney. It's an online commercial. It's like five minutes long. It is hilarious. Um, I wanted to play it, but it's way too long for this morning. Um, What I want to do when I sin against Tanya, I want to work my way out. I'm a good guy. I didn't mean to do that, sweetie. I want to show you how good I am. And I work my way out of the doghouse. I'll buy her flowers. I'll start doing the dishes. I'll make sure to do the laundry a few times more. I'll I'll say really nice things. I'll, I'll work my way out of it. But Jesus says, Adam, that's not how you do it. How you do it. It's called the gospel, the good news of grace, period. Embrace it. Embrace it. Now, what I've found is some of us in this room, I think, struggle with this. 
We really have trouble loving and forgiving because you have never truly received God's free love and forgiveness. You look kind of look at yourself as I'm a pretty good guy, a fun to love dude or girl who wouldn't want to love me. I mean, come on, look at this. And we miss the fact that I am repulsive. Sin is repulsive in the sight of God. Now I'm creating his image. I'm beautiful in that. And God says, I'm invested in this. I'm going to move towards you in Jesus. Here's another way to say it is this way. We do not forgive our spouse because he or she is deserving, but rather because God is good and deserving. He has been forgiven much, loves much. It's another way to say it. I don't move towards Tanya. She doesn't move towards me to offer grace and forgiveness because I deserve it. She moves towards me because God has worked in her heart, because God has worked in my heart, and because God is deserving. Not my spouse, I'm going to forgive and move towards them. Jesus, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Let me tell you one more story. As we kind of work at land in the plane here. Another story that Jesus told, Matthew chapter 18, is where this one's found. Again, I don't want you to turn. I want to kind of tell it in a, try and hopefully in a relevant way for you. It again involves a banker. It involves a guy who people owe money to. And this guy owed the banker a lifetime worth of work. In the original Greek language, the, the dollar amount that's given, in that culture, it would have taken the average person a lifetime to pay this debt off. Huge debt. The banker calls him in and says, I've, you know what? I'm getting out of the business. I'm shutting down shop. I'm going to clean off my books. So I need the money now. Pay up. I'm tired of chasing after you. Just pay up. We're closing this thing down. Now, the guy, the guy falls on his knees, according to the text, and begs and pleads for, I can't pay this. Please don't throw me in jail. I cannot do this. Now, the guy, the banker says, you know what? I have mercy in you. The debt is canceled. You're free, completely free of a lifetime worth of debt. Go, you're free. Now the guy walks out into the street. Now as soon as he gets out on the street, he runs across a guy who owes him money, $100, maybe 1000 when you understand the original language. And he reaches out, now you can't make this stuff up. I love the Bible, you just cannot make this stuff up. I mean, he reaches out and he grabs the guy by the throat. And he starts squeezing and shaking and, I mean, just foaming. it. I mean, it's like he's ticked off. Pay up now. Now, think about this. This guy was just forgiven a huge debt. And here he is squeezing the life out of someone for this tiny little pocket change. Now, the servant, there's a guy in the area that kind of watches this fight go down, who goes back to the original banker and says, hey, hey I got something to tell you. So the original banker calls the guy back in, and here's the way Jesus tells it in Matthew chapter 18. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailer. Don't miss this. To be what? Tortured. Now, I, Jesus, I want to read into this a little bit. I don't think Jesus intended to say it this way because of this, but I, this is a truth that I, Scripture teaches elsewhere. When you are not a person who can forgive others, bitterness reigns in your heart, and it doesn't destroy them, it destroys you. 
and you're tortured. You're going to walk through life tortured. Now, what this text, though, is this is physical torture. He's going to get thrown in jail and beaten, whipped, and lashed, and everything else. Hit with, a, hit with all, I mean, ugly stuff. Until you should pay back all that you've owed. Now, then Jesus teaches the truth. This is how my heavenly father, now catch this. He's now going to shift it to this is what, how God looks at this. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Husband, wife, how you doing with forgiveness? How are you doing when your spouse wrongs you? How you doing? It's a pretty high standard that Jesus sets because it's a pretty high standard that he lived to free you and me. Pastor Mark Driscoll from the book, Real Marriage. Some of you have read this book and seen this book. I'm gonna mention this book here in a minute, but he, he has another quote that I, that I kind of pulled from this one. He says this, If I accept God's forgiveness of my sins, but refuse to forgive my spouse of his or her sins, I'm in effect saying by my actions that my spouse's sin against me is worse than my sin against God. That's a profound statement that comes right out of Matthew 18. I want to mention, we've got a few books. We did have more. First service took some. Um, Pastor Chris was at Ollie's last week up in Reading. A little plug. Ollie's, Ollie's awesome. I was on a date this week and we had to burn. It was a, it was a group date, a double date thing. And we had to burn some time because we didn't want to get home till the kids were in bed. Amen. Praise Jesus. So we had to find a place to go. So guess where we went? Ollie's. Yay. So anyway, um, I love going through all their books. But anyway, so Chris found these books for three ninety nine. This is a great book on marriage. There's a lot of great books on marriage, and I'm not necessarily plugging this over any other. I'm just saying this is a good book. It's a good practical stuff. And if you've not read it, three ninety nine. We bought them all, anticipating you to enjoy them. Um, if you don't have the money, that's fine. Take the book. Uh, if you do have the money, drop $4 in the offering next week, and we'll call it even. Um, so anyway, I want to take a couple of things out of this book as we land the plane that I think is important so we don't walk away from this misunderstanding. Because I think there's, in a pacifist culture that Eastern Lancaster County often is, I think sometimes we talk about forgiveness, it gets a little um, misunderstood. And so I want to adapt some things that, that's been said in this book and kind of add some of my own twist to them. I just want to kind of uh, wrap, kind of land this plane. Talk about what repentance and forgiveness first is not, because I think we talk about what it's not to help us understand what it is. I want to make this very practical. Repentance, first and foremost, is not getting caught, but coming clean. I am very leery as a pastor walking with people who tell me they're changed, but the movement towards their change was the fact that they got caught by someone else. I'm not saying it's not legit. I just always kind of step back and think, we'll see how this goes. True repentance is simply saying, I have done wrong. No one's found me out yet, and I'm now going to come clean. That's true repentance. Repentance is not denying, diminishing, excusing, or managing your sin. I've been around some that kind of share some things at times. I think they're more or less sharing to kind of manage themselves through life, and that's not repentance. Repentance is not mere confession. So if you come to me and say, hey, Adam, I want to confess my sin to you. You've not repented. You've simply confessed. It's not the same thing. It's cool. Very important part of the step, but it's not the same thing. 
Repentance, here's the next one, is not solely grieving the consequences of your sin, but is hating the evil of your sin. So in other words, when you sin and really blow it, you have consequences. If you cheat on your spouse, there are significant consequences to that one. Significant. And repentance is not simply feeling bad and disliking the consequences. Repentance is focused on the sin and saying, I hate the sin that I've committed against first God and second my spouse. Now, here's what repentance is. I'd sum it up maybe in one word. Repentance is humility. I had a pastor recently say this. I loved it. The Bible never says be humble. Never really commands. It just talks about living with humility. That's not necessarily you go do. It's who you are, in other words. So repentance is humility. Repentance is confession. That's a part of repentance. Repentance is remorse. It's feeling bad. It is. It has a clear part of that. And repentance, at its very core, is change. Repentance, the word itself literally means to do an about face, to turn in a 180-degree direction and walk the other direction. That's repentance. Now, forgiveness. Forgiveness gets a little messier for us. Again, I want to state what it's not, kind of adapted from Mark Driscoll, and then uh, kind of give you what it is. First of all, forgiveness is not denying, approving, or diminishing sin that has been committed against you. We try and do this with our kids a lot. When our kids and someone comes and they've really been hurt by their brother or sister, we, don't, we aren't cool with the it's okay as a response because it's not okay. It's just not okay. It's okay to really be hurt because sin hurts. So that's the first thing I'd say. Second thing, forgiveness is not waiting for someone to acknowledge sin, apologize, and then repent. It's not forgiveness. You can forgive someone who's never moved in your direction and ask for it. In other words, it doesn't mean you're restored, but you can offer them forgiveness. Restoration is a whole nother picture. Forgiveness and restoration. Forgiveness is the beginning of restoration, but forgiveness and restoration are not the same thing. Next one. Forgiveness is not naivety. Forgiveness is also not enabling sin. It's also not forgetting sin. And it is not dying emotionally and no longer feeling the transgression. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. Sometimes in a church where we teach, like, we hear these great testimonies, God released me of all my bitterness. Praise God, that can happen. But more often than not, it goes like this. The, the Jesus prayer that he counsels us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, what is part of that prayer? Forgive us this day our trespasses as we forgive our trespassers. Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus tells that story, it's, it's, he says, listen, it's a 70 times 7 deal. So sometimes it goes like this. Dear God, please forgive my wife or my husband. Ten minutes into your day, oh, dear God, please forgive my wife and my husband. Sometimes we teach this thing like it's like this big lightning bolt. Oof, I'm, for, I'm, I'm moving on. You, it's a lot of times, because the hurt is so deep, it's a lot of times consistent, regular, consciously, I forgive them. Movement. Here's another one. This is a big one. Forgiveness is not neglecting justice. If someone breaks into your home and robs you clean, you can forgive them and still take them to court. I think sometimes in our pacifist culture, we mix this one up. You can forgive, you can take them to court and still exercise grace on them. God makes it pretty clear that forgiveness and justice are not, they work together. And a lot of times through justice, 
It actually brings repentance to the other person. And sometimes by us just forgiving and erasing the debt, we've never allowed God to work in the other person's heart and life to come to repentance. Again, that's, that's a big one. I think sometimes we get another one. I'd say this forgiveness is loving. Here's what forgiveness is. It's loving despite the sin. Despite the sin that my wife commits, I love her. She loves me. It's being, here's the simplest way I'd say it. It's being for them. It's wanting the best for, if you've forgiven someone, you can truly in your heart say, I want the best for them. I can pray for them. I'm not going to keep records of wrongs and I'm not going to punish them with what they've done against me. Forgiveness is costly and it's lived out of the great commandment, which is love God first and foremost and love others second. In other words, I just state it this way. This way to land the plane. In other words, you can forgive your spouse and still leave them. I'm not going to get into the whole thing on a divorce and separation here, but here's the deal. I'm going to talk about the really ugly ones, the abuse, physical damage that's being done. Danger from alcohol, alcoholics that are putting your children in harm's way. And you can go on and probably tack some others in there. You can forgive them and separate from them. But I can't, st- don't, don't mishear this. You're still for them though. I watch too many people in this situation walk away with bitterness in their heart towards their loved one. And they're not walking away saying, I'm for you. They're walking away saying, I'm walking away to protect myself. And it's all about me. Now, here's the other, I just want to give a little caveat. If you're in one of those situations, this message is cool for you. And I hope it brings you life. But boy, I'd really encourage you to walk with a counselor, sit down with me or Pastor Chris. And really kind of, because those get really, really messy and how to work out and walk through. So I just encourage you that. Now, the final thing I'd say, then we'll land the plane. I want to talk about bitterness a minute. Bitterness is often unrelated to the magnitude of a sin, but instead it correlates to how much you love the offender. If I'm in New York City and some stranger walks up and just nails me in the face, I'm going to be pretty ticked off. I'll get up and look for a policeman. Or if I'm maybe in other days, I would have got up and chased the guy down. Now, the reality is, I am, unless I have had some kind of deep wound that, that now I've got to have surgically repaired and, and I'm not crippled for life, uh, the reality probably, I'm not going to walk around with bitterness in my heart towards the guy that punched me in the face in New York City. But it's interesting to me, so it doesn't, sometimes bitterness does not correlate to the sin, but it correlates to how much I love the person who sinned against me. And why this is important to talk about is because I've heard stories and I've walked with people that, that have, I think of one friend very clearly who their, his wife cheated on her, on him. As I'm walking with him and he, he, he says to me, I mean, this was just right after he finds out, he says, just sincere as he can be, I've forgiven her and I'm ready to move on. And now he may have, I don't know. But when I asked him in return, I said, well, is it possible you've never really loved her? Because I find it really odd that that deep of betrayal does not hurt you in a very real place. Is it possible you've never really loved her? So sometimes the sign that bitterness is in your heart is actually a good thing because it's love gone bad. And so with bitterness, sometimes it's an indication that I've got, I'm for this person. Because God says in the scripture that he is jealous for you. 
Same as a husband, in theory, should be jealous for his wife. Now, that can get crazy and out of hand, but a husband should be for his wife. A wife should be for her husband. And when that love is violated, it's going to hurt deeply. How do we end this? (laughs) I want to come back to Romans chapter 5. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, Adam was yet a sinner. Christ died for Adam. Put your own name in there. He has been forgiven much, loves much. How important it is then as Ephesians chapter four, verse 32 says, in the same way, show compassion, kindness, and forgiveness towards your spouse that God has shown towards you. I want to end this entire series. There's some roses down front here. Some beautiful roses. I love roses. I mean, they're just absolutely gorgeous creations that God has made. We think about a rose. What I'd like as we end this whole series is just a, a time of commitment. I want to talk to the men and the husbands in the room. This is for you. I'm sorry, ladies. I'm, I'm, this is for the husbands. I got an email yesterday. It came to me anonymously through a friend's account, someone they sent it. They gave me permission even to share it publicly, which is why I'm sharing this right now. It came in. Someone has been sitting through this series. And they've had been committing an affair, two actually, against their spouse for a very long time. Now, as I read this email, I try to place myself in just the carnage of that is unreal. They have kids, according to the email. But I loved what they said at the very end. So tomorrow when we come to church, we're going to be able to sit for the first time with nothing between us. That may not be you. Maybe you're over here on the other side, husband. You've got a good marriage. You've worked hard at your marriage. You've not given up. You love your wife. You've been to counseling. You've pushed through some tough stuff. But I'd likewise say to you, date your spouse. Don't ever stop chasing her. Don't ever stop forgiving her. Don't ever let that bitter thing grow and just constantly. So again, maybe you're on this side and this, this rose for you would signify, I'm going to take this back to my wife. Just hand it to her and have a moment wherever you're at. Have a moment. If you're able to do this, don't come up and be fake about this. So everyone sees you. If you can have a moment, go back to your spouse and whisper in her ear something special. I joked with the staff. I thought it'd be fun to do a little slow dance. We're going to play uh, the song, I Won't Give Up. But I thought, eh, it's probably taking a little too far this morning in Eastern Lancaster County in church. So if any of you really feel compelled to do that, there's a lot of room in the back there. Have at it where no one else can see you. But in all seriousness, but take the rose back. And as the song is playing, just have a moment, pray together. Maybe it's, you just squeeze her hand and hold it tight. She knows what it means. Or maybe you get in her ear and just whisper something just between you and her and say, sweetheart, I'm not giving up on you. Maybe if you're over on this side, you've got to come back and say, I know you're hurt. I know you're hurt. But we're going to push through this because I am not giving up on you. So I'm going to pray for us. The song's going to play. Then we're going to have a worship song together and, and end this service out just really worshiping God and allowing God to do some work in this room between husband and wife.
God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I, I, <laughs> help me as a pastor and a husband to love well. Help me to understand constantly, keep it before me. I mean, I do the work to keep it before me, to understand how my sin separates me from a holy, righteous God that you are. And Jesus came to this earth to hang on a cross, to pay a horrible death, to live a perfect life, to rise again, to exchange his perfect life with my imperfect life. God, you initiated that. You did that. You moved towards me while I was rebelling against you so that I could be in a relationship with you. You're vested in this. You're for me. Thank you for that. I thank you so much for that. And God, I pray for all the marriages in this room that we would all keep that square in our hearts and that we would walk with our spouses in a way that we understand we have been forgiven much, therefore we can love much. God, may we be husbands and wives who are constantly keeping grace at the center of our relationship, walking towards them with repentance and forgiveness so that those affections that we felt early on in our marriages and our dating years would stay with us. So when I've been married for 50 years, I can still smile at my wife. I can still get Twitter pated. I can still get sweaty palms and excitement in my heart because I'm married to my wife. I love her. So would you just do work right now in this room in the marriages that are sitting here with us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.